Welcome to Main Street Mesa, where we discuss issues around building a more human, people-centered community in Mesa, Arizona, and other communities like it. I'm David Crummy. I'm Ryan Wozniak. And we're here to dive into our second podcast and the beginning of our book club. If you missed our <laughs> if you missed our first episode, it was our introduction to who are we and what is our mission for Main Street Mesa. Rambling, 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 exciting, exciting, exciting things. If you haven't listened to that six times already, you can go and check it out on SoundCloud. Mm-hmm. Or, or go for your seventh. But today marks an embarkation on discussing walkable cities, how downtown can save America one step at a time. We'll start off with the first 35 pages, which covers the prologue, a general theory of walkability, why walkability, and then walking the urban advantage. But first, letters. We don't have letters yet. <laughs> why are we fooling ourselves? You can send us letters, though. <laughs> send your comments to MainStreetMesa at gmail.com. That's MainStMesa at gmail.com. Or comment on our Facebook, Tumblr, at Main Street Mesa. And for the brave, record a short voice message and email it to us for a chance to be featured on the show. Yeah, Yeah, that gets us right into our book club. We have a very special guest with us today. Hi, my name is Ariana Wirtha Crummy. Welcome. Tell us a little about yourself. Well, I am a Mesa resident on and off for about 20 years and been in the human and social services for the past five years and mother to three children and like to be involved in what's going on. And full disclosure, we may be married. Um, One of the ideas that we wanted to do, so both Ryan and I have a planning background, but Ari, do you have a planning background? I do not. I have no idea about (laughs) most of this stuff, but it's really interesting and things that I want to know. Ari, I see you as part of building a community of people who are a little bit more excited or feel like they belong to their community as far as being engaged with their community and being able to make a difference in their community. So these are ideas that hopefully will inspire people to say, hey, now I feel like I know a little bit more about this issue and I can get out in front of a commission or a board or a council meeting and express my opinions on these matters. And so hopefully you'll feel a little bit more confident that you have a grasp over some of these issues that are important to any city, the main street of a city as like, this is important. This is what's missing. And let me tell you about a book that I read. And so this is those beginning points right here, walkable cities. Yes. And I completely agree with that. Prior to knowing David really didn't have any idea that I could even get involved in any of this. I didn't know what those avenues were. One of the things that I give Ari a lot of credit for is that when I am bouncing ideas off about how do we get the word out better, Ari works every day with people who are the the working core of Arizona, of Mesa. And in that conversation with her, she really gives me all those good ideas that I don't think of myself of ways to get more people involved. Yeah, and... I always put myself in those situations because I was there. I didn't know how to get this information or that it was available to me. And knowing how those people get information, I think that I do have that advantage to get that information out to you so you can put it out in a format to them. Yeah, sometimes it's tough realizing that not everybody's geeked out about these issues and but they do have a mild interest and we need to be able to connect with these folks. and. 
hopefully some of our listener base will grow to reach out to folks like yourself, you know, people who are mildly interested, who want to learn more about the avenues for how they can affect change. And they also want to know a little bit more about how to articulate that change that they want. So hopefully through this process, everybody have a better grasp of that language that they need to articulate their ideas. Or just using your own words to be able to do that and not have to worry about language. Vocabulary and is one of those things that people get really hung up about Mm -hmm. and saying the right things and it can cause people not to want to speak up because they don't know the words. They don't know the lingo. Sure. And that's true. Yeah. So we have a book in front of us. It's very pretty. It's a picture of a crosswalk. Jeff Speck's Walkable City. How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. We are reading the book one section at a time. We've broken it up and we're starting on the first 35 pages and we're just going to basically walk through the book with you. This is a more readable planning text. Oh, it's not really a planning text. It's just a good readable book. I like how he weaves in and out of data or studies that have been done, but he just talks about it very conversationally in the book. I do agree because if this had a lot of planning jargon or just knowledge-based information, I don't think I'd be able to read it, but it is a very readable book for somebody that just learning all of this. So what struck you first, Tari? For one, the way that it's written is easy to follow, and you can put the way that you live in your city. The way that you can reflect on how you live in your city as described by Jeff Speck uh, and his experiences in cities? You you reflect on your own experience in Mesa? Yes. And and how that contrasts with the experiences that he talks about in the book? Yes, it was easy for me to relate. What about you, David? What jumped out at you? You know, I think the... I think it's the fourth sentence and just like what characterizes the discussion on cities these days is not a wrongheadedness or a lack of awareness about what needs to be done, but rather a complete disconnect between that awareness and the actions of those responsible for the physical form of our communities. And I just, I I sit and I think about all of the meetings I've been through and the attempts by planners and and city councils and, and other leaders, both at the city level and regionally, that we really seem to have this complete disconnect between knowledge of what works and the actions. And we really need to change those actions to actually be beneficial to the entire community, not just, you know, this. we have this myopic view of what we're doing. Right. That one just sort of struck me. We're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars on, in a lot of cases, the wrong things. And I would love to bring in somebody on the show who's had that experience of being the council members or the commissioners who have had to face the pressures that they that they face when making these decisions. Because I know that a lot of times they're just concerned about how their decisions are perceived or whether or not they understand the knowledge or the experience that would come out of their decisions. You know, decision-making that is informed is one thing, but decision-making that is both informed and justifiable or, or a way to justify it to your constituents is, is another aspect of this, right? Because a lot of this, these ideas can be counterintuitive to the suburbanite or somebody who hasn't lived within that walkable context, right? So you're talking about bringing in all this density into my neighborhood. Oh my gosh, doesn't that mean a whole lot more cars on the road? Well, obviously, through 
studying places like New York and San Francisco and places that have evolved to be more walkable over the years. Even so, maybe New York and, and San Francisco are bad in that example. Those, those they, are terrible examples because they because they started <laughs> off as kind of walkable places, right? Because they 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 started to grow uh, before the the advent of the car. But you have places like Portland, which Jeff Speck talks quite a bit about and how it in the last 20 years has grown to be much more walkable but that was a very um, hard decision and, and, a, and a visionary decision that had to be stood by and stuck by in order to be that catalyst or, or to carry that message and carry that vision forward even when people were nervous about what it meant for potential traffic jams and things of that nature like no we are committed to this transit and we're committed to this walkable fabric that in the end will come about but there is that sticky phase right it's where you're not sure if it's going to take or not yeah well and just thinking about mesa so mesa was founded before cars were common i really think that we have this fabulous mormon urban heritage that's made physical in the plat of zion this urban core surrounded by the agriculture and the idea that people need a home and they come together and we have the street laid out and we could argue on you know maybe the blocks are too big but you know it's just really this great foundation that mesa has in the original square mile but our growth in mesa didn't happen until the 50s and 60s and 70s and then it took off and so that true heritage of where we live is only in a few neighborhoods now because most of the development and growth and changes have been to widen the streets and widen the streets mm -hmm. Um, even downtown Mesa, when Main Street was Main Street in the U.S. 60 or before that, you know, it was a, a true street, which meant that people were walking on it and horses and cars and just people just walked across the street. It was like one giant sidewalk that cars drove on. And as cars got better and we got better with our planning and street design, we made the street safer and wider and wider and wider. And at some point it was a, it was six lanes wide. And that's also the point where the US 60 just pushed down to where the freeway is now and left this giant scar across the center of the town. And it, it was devoid of people because it was designed to move cars, not humans. Right. They weren't thinking about moving people. They were thinking about moving cars that happened to have one or two people in it. So we raised a lot of houses in suburbia out of the agricultural area that was supposed to surround our downtown. And we lost a lot of our community heritage, uh, especially with the build and boom of the 70s and then 80s and then 90s and then the noughties. And, and now we're back at it again. And we're really paying the price for it now. But we have made a lot of good choices. I'm, I, I think of the Southern Avenue streetscape improvement mm -hmm. as being one of those incredible gambles that has paid a lot of dividends, not just in being an attractive place, and I'm, I see a lot of people walking there, but also as a place to show that the city's invested, and we are seeing jobs going there. And I like how you said that um, we're, we're paying the price for that now, being these decisions to be car-oriented come with consequences. We can see that in the contrast between the drivable urbanism and the walkable urbanism and how these walkable places are outperforming the drivable places hands down. Like there's just no argument about it that the that these are the places that are highly attractive, 
that have this advantage. And we'll talk about how that urban advantage comes to play in the book and how Jeff Speck beautifully describes it. So, I, you know, we had talked earlier about avoiding jargon. And one of those words that I don't actually know the a good definition of, and it scares a lot of people, is words like urban. Yeah. Like, what does urban mean? Right. So we talked about, I think we talked about this a little bit on episode one, but let's kind of revisit it because... It talk when when I say urbanism, I'm thinking of terms of the built environment, which is another kind of jargony word, but they're kind of they're they're the same in in the fact that they are jargon. But it is how we've taken raw land and designed it with you know asphalt and trees and concrete to serve us people getting around and making that landscape work for us and function for us, and how we get from spot A to point B and complementing our culture, complementing our social needs of connecting to our neighbors and to our city or our leaders or our policemen or all of the services that we enjoy living in a city, right? So, so that, when, that comes about through that, that built environment that becomes designed to, to yield a safer place, a healthier place. Yeah, and, I, and for me, when I hear the word urban, I, I guess it... I'm thinking along the same lines as you, Ryan, um, where I think it's the city, everything in the city that's for us. Mm -hmm. So I think of housing, dense housing, um, you know, I think apartments and shops and a medical center, and that's what I think of as an urban area. Mm -hmm. So kind of along the same lines. Yeah, and a lot of people think when you say urban, they think, (laughs) New York City, or they think, you know, the inner cities of Baltimore, and it it becomes scary. There's yeah. some great examples of urban places that are single story. So let's let's go ahead and just put that out on the table right now. Like the the, the places in, in Southern California, I'm I'm kind of thinking in terms of um, uh, Santa Maria or, or things. Uh, there's there's some really small town places that have not forgotten their urban fabric and still serve uh, as a great city without having to go hugely vertical. I guess, are we saying that urban means a place where you can walk to the things that you need? Yeah, I mean, but people put uh, this this word in front of urban to, to kind of describe how what what is the urban serving? Is the urban serving the walker, the pedestrian, the walkable urbanism? Or is it the drivable urbanism where it's serving the motorist? And so we know that there's, this, in the motorist uh, perspective, there's a huge competition for space and everybody trying to get to the same place in the same rush hours that cause a lot of congestion and a lot of people, the downside of what people think of in terms of urbanism. So the walkable urbanism is kind of uh, the counterbalance to that to say, well, if we're getting too congested and we're, we're uh, clogging up the roads and we're creating too much uh, mayhem and in, in, you know through rush hour let's think about how we can soften that blow and still redesign that that word urbanism with a with another goal such as walkable or healthy urbanism or uh, drivable urbanism. yeah and I so. think that using the word urban in that light and making sure that it, people understand that it it's a walkable thing, not just this driving urbanism where it causes traffic and headaches. But if we use, start using it in that, in that walkable and walkable terms, that the definition would be broadened for most people. And so it's not a scary term anymore. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, and I think that also we need to just, I mean, walkable is a new word, but it really means able to be easily walked somewhere that's easy to get to on foot. Speaking of walkable. Just go back to the book. Yeah, Jeff Speck <laughs> has his own definition, and he kind of breaks it out in three terms, right? What is that? Uh, are we are we there yet? We're, We're still, still on oh, page one. Wow. Man. <laughs> we'll get through these 35 pages sometime tomorrow. Right. Um, so one of my other notes on the, the first page was just that we've, we've really, this is, I think, part of what we were talking about when we're looking at this disconnect between knowledge and action is that we've started to not trust educated professionals to the point that even educated professionals are starting to doubt their knowledge and trust their training. And I I feel like that as I go to conferences around the country, as I look at how things are getting Im- implemented, you know, like, oh, this is the best practice, but we don't have to do that. So the best practice is always in balance with what your community uh, agrees is desirable. So as much as planners would love to, well, I'm not going to say that we would love to because that would be a lot of responsibility, but I was going to say be a dictator of what uh, happens and what gets built in a city. Oftentimes we just need to make sure that we're balancing ideas off of the public and the public gives us the green light. And that's part of what we're doing here is we want to at least reach out or get some voice on the table, some some ideas on the record to let people reflect on this outside of, you know, this decision making scenario where there's a lot of pressure in this in a council chambers or something like that, where you're giving presentation or even a public meeting and you got a lot of people who are angry with your ideas because they're not very well acquainted with them. They're not acquainted with the cost benefit analysis, if you will, of of the ideas that you're talking about. And I would, I just also want to interject that the average person in any city, especially Mesa, has never been to a council meeting. They probably don't know who their council member is. They've never heard of any of the commissions or anything like that. So most people in, I would assume most cities across the country, but exemplified here in Mesa, have never ever been to a council meeting. And the city council and the planning boards and all the commissions that we have aren't hearing the voice of the community at their public meetings because when I go to a public meeting, I'm one of the few people that's not paid to be there. Sure. And and I think that it doesn't take most uh, Mesa residents to effectuate change, but a knowledgeable, vocal minority that is passionate about where the future of Mesa should go, I think could be a very powerful thing here in the city. But I also think that we have a lot of work to be done to bring more people and more voice to the council meetings because it is a small vocal minority that mm. has made most of the changes that we're paying the price for now. You know, why why do we need to move those cars faster? Why do we need to do that? So, you know, as we we're looking at the next page, this is where we're starting to talk about, oh, we're not even at the definition yet. We're just is that walkability is both an end, an end and a means, as well as a measure? Yeah. Because I think when he actually talks about the uh, definition is further. That, oh, sure. Uh, I think he expands more about it later, but I kind of like Here, that just as a theory. theory. I like it as just a very brief little introduction to what walkability is. Ari, when you read that, did it did anything click for you? Yeah, it, it, but it is a good introduction of what walkability is. Because anybody just hears walkable and you're like, okay, great, I can walk to something. But 
just being able to walk to something isn't exactly what walkability is. There's more behind that. I like that it's a goal to be achieved, in, in my putting it in my own words, a way to make things better and uh, a way to measure it, i.e. like walkscore.com, which is an interesting tool if anybody goes to walkscore.com and just wants to click around and kind of get a feel for how uh, walkscore.com tries to measure walkability. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating little thing to kind of play around with, it's just a quick online tool that real estate agents have really latched onto as a way to promote a piece of property as it being in very close proximity to very nice amenities that people can walk to and leave their car behind. One of the things that I like to talk about is the history of Mesa and how things have changed. So we've gone from, if you look at old postcards of Mesa, you can see it was a very walkable place. People walking across the streets, very hustle and bustle. And then as the street became more and more cars only, we basically changed it to an unwalkable area. Even where we live at Alma School on Main Street, I did a brief analysis of the pedestrian and bicycle accidents, and it's one of the most dangerous intersections in Mesa overall. I want to say it's 37 times more likely to be in a crash to be hit by a car if you're walking in that area than any other point in Mesa just by the stats they put out. And we put our light rail right there. And so what have we done to work on fixing that street so it's safer for people walking and people riding their bike? There are tons of people that are walking there and we sort of put them in danger. <laughs> yes, it is a very high traffic area and our oldest walks to school and crosses Alma School. And that's a very wide road. It is a very wide road. You know, and so it is scary to think about that. And there, it's a high pedestrian and a high car traffic area. So, mm. which means that there's a, a good chance of car pedestrian, pedestrian interaction. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not the good kind either. Um, but, you know, he goes on to talk about the, the twin gods of smooth traffic and ample parking. And yes. I can't think about how us in the Phoenix Valley have done more to to worship those gods oh, yeah. than what we've done. This is a common issue in, in many planning departments. You, we we want to bridge the divide between the planners and the engineers. And thankfully, in my experience, engineers have always listened to me with a very open mind and talks about pedestrian safety and walkability being in competition with some of the goals of smooth traffic and ample parking. They're very fascinated by planning to take but we have a lot of work to do to remedy some of those long uh, de those decisions that stay with us for a long time. Because once a street is designed and built, it stays that way for many years until somebody comes around with the budget to revamp or reimagine what that street lo should look like. And it's a it's quite the undertaking at that point. Yeah, Jeff Speck writes. Whether intentionally or by accident, most American cities have effectively become no walking zones. That's absolutely true. With, with the, as we've widened our streets, as we've made them less and less safe, look at our rates of kids walking to school. Mm -hmm. Look at how our kids walk to school. They can't do it safely. And now school parking lots are jammed packed with cars, yeah. making the school parking lots even more unsafe for kids getting there. Or even the backup on the streets for the parents that are trying to drop their kids drop off. off. and pick off. Yeah. Pick up. Mm -hmm. create, create this stuff. And, you know, part of it is because we've made our streets unsafe for kids to walk to school. Another part of it is because we keep 
making bigger schools further apart from each other. We don't take what we used to have, which was smaller schools, more in the sca- neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, luckily, and we're close enough where the oldest can walk to high school, and it's about a mile away. It's just crossing that the the major road of Alma School. That's the scary part. We have still not rebuilt all the things that we broke when it comes to making our streets safe. And not just safe for moving a car at 45 miles an hour, which is deadly when it comes to kids. And we create those opportunities all the time. And so when when a city, when a community wants to take back their streets for the pedestrian, and it's been 45 miles an hour for residents you know, lived memory. The idea of taking it down to something like 30 miles per hour is kind of a, a tough, sometimes a tough sell, right? It takes, well, I depend on my car, they think, to get to the grocery store. I depend on my car to get out of my neighborhood and on to whatever destination I need to get to. So now I have to go slower. It's gonna, I already spent too much time in my car as it is. They're frustrated. And the, the prospects of slowing down to make their neighborhood more walkable uh, is, a, is a tough sell. But as a lot of communities that have been studied and how they've evolved, that slowing down is a great first step to so much else going coming about that goes right that actually makes their time in their car less. Jeff Speck talks about outdated zoning and building codes have all but created our public realm that's unsafe, uncomfortable, and just plain boring. And that's so true for 95% of, of our city. And I think that a lot of people recognize the first thing that you can do to make a big step and peeling that back is parking, right? Parking lots just are this huge, lifeless void of asphalt that exists in so many cities and so many communities. And there's a professor of mine that used to uh, talk about the shopping mall asphalt moat as being this gigantic uh, thing that is really hard to bridge between the sidewalk and the entranceway of that mall. Like how how does a pedestrian even feel welcomed to be to come to a mall when they've got four hundred parking spaces to, to, to have the to, front door? Yeah, to get to, to get past. And then it's usually not even well demarcated for the pedestrian. Some of the band-aids that planning likes to put on these parking lots, right, is we'll make them tree lined. We'll, we'll put a, a pedestrian path down this path of 200 parking spaces that welcomes the pedestrian all the way from the sidewalk down the 200 times, you know, 10 feet wide parking space. Which is a quarter mile. Right, yeah. A quarter mile of parking, you know, to the front door. So... Yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of challenge there. It does not make it more comfortable or less boring. Yes. So the next part talks about small number of forward-thinking cities are gobbling up the lion's share of post-teen suburbanites and empty nesters with the wherewithal to live where they want, while most mid-sized American cities go hungry. So that's sort of like brain drain. A lot of my um, career in the human and social services was working with people looking for work and employment challenges. So when uh, we had the recession a few years ago and I was seeing people with degrees and they had to close up shop because they either had their own business or were mass layoffs, all that that was going on, they were leaving the city. Like their only choice was to leave the area just so that they can find a job, not even Mm. necessarily something that was going to be paying what they were at, but um, just to be in a job 
may be related to what their field was. One of the other things that you've talked to me about is your friends from high school, and most of them left Mesa immediately after graduation. Yeah, I have uh, a lot of friends that are everywhere else but Mesa, you know, or even out of the state of Arizona. I have a lot of friends in California, and because that's where those jobs are. We don't have the jobs here for the degrees that they went for. A lot of those employers are looking for cities that are more like Portland or Austin or San Francisco that have the walkable urbanism and that creative streak, which attracts the type of knowledge workers they're looking for and not interested in cities that have basically have business parks. There's there's so much lifelessness to a business park. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> what is inspiring about walking around a business park or, or you arrive to your business park job and you get out and you just take that deep breath air, breath of, what, I don't know. It's asphalt to lined air? I'm not sure what. In the fancier ones, it's concrete. So there's a lot more culture, right? Going from business park to a street that incorporates that employment and that retail and the, that office space above you know, the place that the cool place to hang out, whether it be coffee or a sandwich, right? Like imagine showing up for a, a job interview and you get out of your out of your car in a business park or you get dropped off by a taxi to a business park because, you know, you're you're shopping around. You're trying to get out of this lifeless place um, and you're trying to find a very uh, fun place to live and place to call work. So you're probably you're visiting this area. So you're you're not just there for the employee employer to interview you. You're actually taking stock of that environment that you're going to be working and living in. Your side of making the decision on whether or not to work there has a lot to do with things outside of the job. Yeah, well, and that's where we get into that in a bit, which is very much that the places where you want to live and work are places that are exciting. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean two hours in your car. And, you know, he goes through and says, even New York and San Francisco will still get some things wrong, but they will continue to poach the, the country's best and brightest unless our other more normal cities can learn their from their successes while avoiding their mistakes. And that's Mesa. We're a normal city. How many of your friends have moved to Portland or San Francisco or San Antonio because of jobs and opportunities that we just don't have even in Phoenix or the rest of the valley, but are in more walkable, creative places. Even coming from someplace outside of Detroit, I have a lot more kids that I went to high school with who have moved on to Boston, New York, Southern California, Austin, um, what's the other one? Chicago. Chicago is a big magnet. All of those are places that people are finding better quality of life and things that they're looking for. Downtown Mesa does offer a lot of those options for people that are looking for those types of amenities and that kind of lifestyle because you can get a lot of what you're looking for in one of those more walkable, community-oriented mm-hmm. places, but, but only in part. We, we have a long way to go in even that small bit. Downtown Phoenix has a little bit of that. Parts of Tempe have a little bit of that. We can build on those successes, definitely. And, and we're seeing Tempe actually capitalizing on their successes along the river, right? Tempe Town Lake. They've done a, an immense job at uh, celebrating that as an asset. Also working in, in cooperation with ASU, right? They've got this opportunity to, to get those kids who come to ASU to fall in love with the place and hopefully stay, and stay. there. Right? Yeah. 
Um, but you know, like this, this whole idea of we've engineered, we've pushed out people by safety and engineering. Okay. The idea that, you know, we can't even walk across the street anymore. We can't walk to the grocery store anymore. We've made places safe by excluding people. And because people don't go there anymore, they're quote unquote safe, whereas they are anything but safe. In addition to that, I, I feel like we've pushed out community and small business and more for the sake of safety and proper engineering, but we haven't actually gotten more safety in return. Yeah, and we've lost a lot of street culture. Yeah. Mm. And, and this is where I want to drag in families, you know, oh, yeah. like the brother of the former mayor of Bogota always ta- has the 8 to 80 city. Oh, organization the, the bike lanes but his that's his brother but he talks he has an organization called eight to eighty cities and he talks about children as the indicator species of walkability mm, sure that if kids are safe to walk and be out they get to that means that anyone can be safe and be out if an eight-year-old and an 80 year old can safely walk across the street we know that that is safe and I don't know if any of our street crossings or streets, really meet that definition when we think about people biking we think about spandex warriors we don't Mm -hmm. think about kids riding their bike to school and that's who we have to talk about is an eight-year-old walking or riding their bike to school can they get there safely yeah and jeff speck actually does a great job at saying you know that that's only part of it like we we can't just uh design streets to be safe and leave them boring you know because in a lot of respects an eight-foot sidewalk doesn't mean anything if that eight-foot sidewalk doesn't connect the right amenities together, doesn't uh, also provide the right environment and uh, the right mix of of things that are happening. Just safe and boring won't cut it. It's got to be safe and lively. That brings us to a general theory of walkability. Jeff Speck's sort of talking about, you know, what who he is and what he is, and he talked about the Mayor's Institute on City Design. So I Googled it. Mesa's participated three times. Uh, Keno Hawker, Scott Smith, and John Giles, all in the past 15 years. And I haven't heard about this until I read this book. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it either. And so I Googled it, found out about it. So I would love to know what we've learned from those activities. What did we focus on in those <laughs> activities? And again, I think that sometimes this doesn't come down to our leaders uh, needing more education on these issues. Sometimes it's the pressure that they face when making those informed decisions because informed decisions in a, <laughs> in a closed-off room doesn't necessarily win you re-election when it comes time. You know? So like I said, this transformation uh, aspect of going from drivable to walkable sometimes comes with a lot of a lot of commitment to those sticky points along the way and we that's that's what we need not just the mayors to be on board but we need uh, that active voice in the community to be on board as well yeah about greater education i really really love love the idea of him moving into the city with his family mm-hmm. because he is becoming a community member so he can fully understand what that city is what the uh, local environment is and really live it Um, so i really appreciate that he actually does this and it's something that's really really important i think because you can't just go in and and have this knowledge of what cities should be 
and say, well, you know, we need to do this here and that there um, because it might not be working for that community. And the only way to know it is if you're living in it. I wonder, too, if he tries to live it as both a cyclist, as somebody who's walking, as somebody who's driving, as, you know, like how many... How many different hats does he wear as the, the, the prototypical, you know, quote-unquote biker or the quote-unquote person who commutes long distances or what have you? Because everybody, there's going to be always a spectrum of people uh, who live in a city. So it's interesting to try to make cities work. He then goes on to do a comparison between an experience he had in Lowell, Massachusetts, and then in Rome. Mm. And the idea of the, the conventional measures of pedestrian friendliness and so-called safe pedestrian mm-hmm. facilities, in Lowell, Massachusetts, he pressed the button and was nearly killed <laughs> with his, his pregnant wife and child. As he's begging across the street, the beg button, right? Yes. Pedestrian beg button. Yes. And then in Rome, which has none of that, I've never been to Rome, but if it's like other cities I've been to, or like the movies, I guess, it doesn't have that. You just cross the street when you need to. Yeah, and I imagine that they probably haven't brought all the streets up to ADA compliance either, right? With the the broad uh, ramps and all that, uh, big painted crosswalks and warning signs. And, and, and the difference between any city in USA and Rome, what I gather from the book is in Rome, pedestrian is the way of life. That is how you get around. And the motorists yield to pedestrians and that's the common uh, way they, that the city lives. Yeah, and Rome hasn't uh, bent over backwards to try to make the motorists happy in every scenario, right? Uh, I mean, I haven't been there either, but from the sound of how Jeff Speck uh, describes it, the the pedestrian still rules and there's still so much rich culture that entices the eye and, and allows people to have an interesting walk. It's the interesting walk there that, that Rome is a great example of as he talks yeah. about. And, you know, he even talks about Vegas. You know, we have all the interesting things on the strip in Vegas. And I was thinking about it. Like, I've been to Vegas, and you do a lot of walking in Vegas. But it's not a very walkable place. Even the strip isn't because you have such long distances to go. You can't cross the boulevard safely. No. Yeah, because cars still roll down the strip, not yeah. pedestrians. I think that Vegas is a tough example because there's just so much uh, novelty there that people are trying to absorb. Whereas I don't know if, if every city can be quite as novel as Vegas. I don't know because you think about, I mean, most think about Paris, or which I have visited, and Boston I've visited. Those cities are incredible and Independence Square and all those kind of places. And they are way more walkable than Vegas, even though Vegas, the number one way to get around anywhere is by foot. Right. But it's still a not very walkable place. So that brings us into what he calls fabric. Yes, fabric. This is definitely a nerdy, jargony term, right? What did you think of when you heard fabric, uh, Ari? Did, did that... Does this analogy click for you? Because it, it, it clicks, but it is something that, you know, I had a... I, you know, read it, reread it, and then, you know, it does make sense. Like how, how tightly woven these different things are coming together um, to, to create a fabric. You right. know, the, the streets uh, crisscross in a way that, that thread sort of does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but 
what what comes between those uh, those different threads and uh, the blend that it makes, you know, either makes a pattern work or it makes a pattern not work, um, <laughs> and who it works for, as whether it be the the motorist or the pedestrian. One of the things that I really saw here as well that just called out to me is that there's more to walking than just making it safe and pretty. He was talking about the 150 main streets that have been pedestrianized in the 60s and 70s and they failed almost immediately. And I still hear these calls to just close off main street, get the cars off of main street and just make it pedestrian only. And hopefully he gets into more details here, but it's not just about making it safe and pretty. It's also about making it useful. And that goes straight into the general theory of walkability. How do you make the streets useful? Right. And it has to do with what's there, right? And whether or not it serves the the people who live there. Useful to me is something or places that I want to take my family to places that we can visit and explore together. Or even if it is just a nice evening walk, you know, uh, being able to, to have those safe areas, not be worried about cars and traffic. When I think about useful, I think about asking our 17-year-old to just run to Fry's real quick, which is a quarter of a mile, a half a mile away. Yeah, across the intersection. But it's not useful because it's not safe. Yeah. To be able to go across Alma School or across Main Street is not safe. And when I was 8 or 10... My parents could send me to the store, even if it was the corner market, to go grab something. I can't do that with any of our kids. I'm not even comfortable with our 17-year-old doing that. No. And and there's a lot to be said about eyes on the street, right? Go back to Jane, our our lovely St. Jane. Um, She talks a lot about that sidewalk ballet and the, the fact that other people are out and about. And when you're amongst other people on a on a street there's just something more safe about it and so if you're this lone person making the asphalt and concrete dominant walk from your house to a supermarket um and it's just you and the concrete that's and a bunch of cars zipping by at 40 miles an hour that's not a very safe environment and it's not very interesting and it's not very comfortable and and you don't have uh, a bunch of other things kind of teasing you uh, along the way to, to, to make that time go by in a way that's interesting. In this case, I don't even think it's about people because that intersection has tons of people. I'm not worried about the people. I'm worried about the people driving the cars because it's not safe. It's 45 miles an hour on Alma School. It's 35 miles an hour on Main Street and cars aren't paying attention. The crosswalks while painted aren't respected by the people driving. The intersection light doesn't give you enough time to cross the street after you press the button. Bad intersection. It's, it is it's, a bad intersection. You have to hustle even as a not incapacitated adult to cross the street before it tells you not to cross anymore, let alone a kid or someone who has some sort of mobility disability. You can't do it. And it's and tons of people are having to do it. But again, it's one of the most dangerous intersections. It is dangerous. And, and I know what you're talking about, like by people being out there because the people out there have picked up, especially I think since the light rail, has has opened and more and more people are starting to use it on a on a frequent uh, or common routinely basis <clears throat> but um i still don't get the feel that those people are are necessarily 
out enjoying themselves. No, I mean, most of those people are, most of the traffic I see are people walking from their house to light rail or from light rail to transfer to a bus or vice versa, bus to light rail or bus light rail home. And I think that just the the attitude of the those people out, uh, out, you know, walking, whether or not they're happy or they're they're kind of having to navigate this uh, environment of disutility or uh, you know like this environment that's really not conducive to the pedestrian is is having a uh, a drag on their their outlook on why they're out there. They're being forced into an unsafe environment mm-hmm. because of the that's how what we have right. And so they have to do it. You know, kids take the train to go to high school. And I see kids going to Heritage Academy, which starts at sixth grade. And those kids are forced to use those systems in an unsafe manner because of the way that we've designed it. And so if you don't have to use it, if you don't have to get to work, if you don't have to get to school, you're not encouraged to use it. And this is feet from my house. This is the pathway that I would go if I want... When I was a kid and I wanted to go grab a soda or an ice cream sandwich and I had an extra dollar, I would walk straight to the corner grocery store. And I can't give my kids a dollar to go to the corner grocery store because it's unsafe. And it's unhappy. Oh, and it's it's miserable. But it is miserable. I think that uh, there's a there's a good crossover here between what Jeff Speck's uh, message is and some folks on what makes cities happy. And I think that might be another book that uh, another time for another book that will talk about uh, how some cities have gone away from measuring uh, necessarily the the vehicle miles or the the economic output and started thinking in terms of what makes people happy, trying to find metrics of happiness, because I think pedestrians. If, if respected, can contribute to that happiness factor. You know, the, the idea of happiness as a metric is really attractive, but I've seen so many groups try and mm-hmm. do happiness surveys. It does... It boggles the mind. <laughs> it boggles the mind, especially how we do it here, because it just ends up being a student project that maybe gathers data, but no, does no good for It's a community. cute survey. <laughs> and it drives me nuts, because unless it comes... At a broader spec, you can't do it just at a community level. You need to actually take a hard look at the major issues that are confronting our community. And happiness is the result of a lot of those issues, but we better be focusing on some of those issues right away. I mean, we have, I mean, one, the urban urban fabric that we're talking about is very important that we need to be, create these walkable spaces because you save huge amounts of money by not driving. Uh, A lot of people don't have cars and they have to use public transportation or walk or bike to be able to get to work. If our streets are designed in a way that they being able to do that can lead to their death, it's not, it's not okay. And, you know, we have all these other issues that are confronting. I mean, never, we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about jobs and education and all of this ties together and is brought together by the fabric of urban life, our streets. Yeah. Well, going back to the this chapter, the general theory of walkability, I think for me, I got a little lost in this conversation. You know, the, there's a section in the book where he explains exactly what the general theory of walkability is, and it's the four main areas of being useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting. And I think we kind of rattled on that a little bit, but we didn't actually bring it back to the book. Mm-hmm. 
I think it's absurd that she's suggesting that we follow the book for our book club. Oh, how dare you? (laughs) (laughs) So what we have learned is that we really like to talk and we go off on crazy tangents and it's great. And what we're going to do actually is just pause at page in the first two sections and, uh, make episode three into the next two and we'll work on that. If we take a look at this, our prologue, the the general theory of walkability, those two sections, what what are your takeaways so far? Like what are you what are you getting out of this? What are you missing? What are you hoping for? He does he does a lot of little uh lists actually uh throughout the book. Which I think is helpful for me because like I said, you know, all of this is new to me and trying to uh, relate to it in my city and the way I live. It's helpful to have it broken down. Well, this, you know, this specifically mean, means uh-huh. this. And so walkability, in my experience, in trying to talk with uh, decision makers or people in the public, uh, walkability is a very tough topic for them to wrangle because they think in terms of, well, if I can walk from A to B, it's walkable. But there's so much more to just being able to walk walk able. I can understand the confusion, but it obviously doesn't uh, contribute to the fact of whether or not people feel comfortable, uh, whether it be their temperature in the scolding hot sun of of the Phoenix metro area or the condition of the cars that are zooming by and at maybe an alarming rate or the the smell of the dust in the air that's uh, produced as the cars are zooming by or any of that. So there's a comfortable factor, there's an interesting factor, there's the safe factor, and there's the useful factor. And, and Jeff does a great job at kind of nailing down all four of those. Uh, you can talk about those for a, a lot with regard to how approaches towards all four of those factors. Like that could be a very long tangent. If we take a look at those four items, useful. Useful means that most aspects of daily life are located close at hand and organized in a way that walking serves them well. We talked about how Basically, the area around Almost School and Main Street, even though they have all the items that make could be useful, useful, it's not accessible. But if if we were to shift that entire conversation to McDonald and Main Street, right in the heart of downtown Mesa, we're missing amenities, grocery store, things like that. But we have a lot of other amenities. So if you live within a half mile of McDonald and Main Street you do have a much more useful walk. What are things that you think are useful within walking distance? A market is, you know, something that is very useful. A medical facility, park. What about date night? That's what I think of. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Like, wouldn't it be just romantic if me and my wife could just walk to a date spot, some place where we can take our time, have a nice meal, have a nice few drinks, and not have to worry about climbing into a car getting back to our house like just a nice chill date night would be great think about visiting my friend in la and she lived in one of the neighborhoods that was outside of downtown la and i think about la as being car centric and nothing and they lived on the third floor of their condo this cute little one-bedroom condo and that evening we walked from there down to their main street which was basically this neighborhood downtown and it had 
shops. It had a grocery store. It had bakery. All those kind of things that were right there. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is in L.A.? And she's like, yeah, this is what L.A. is about. It's Everything's within walking distance from this little, I, I think urban planners call it a node, but, you know, the, the hub of the community, the little, the little downtown. Right. Yeah, and every place can have a little downtown, but it takes a couple of things come together to make a place useful. And one of those things that even is a prerequisite for those who are providing something of value are people to serve. So this is kind of where it intersects with the the way that the community is designed to contribute to setting a um, a platform to even allow for the usefulness useful business venture to to flourish right because without people to serve and and opportunities to meet a need if the need is so sparse then then the service to serve that need never comes about to begin with. And so that kind of kind of gets into that dirty little word density or intensity that uh, sometimes is a tough pill to swallow in the public meetings. But with that comes this great opportunity to meet all the amplified needs of the amplified development that ends up coming to exist near that node. And it doesn't have to be this intense node forever, right? It scales down and it becomes quieter and more, more neighborhood-like as you make your progress outside of the node. Well, but I, I also have to say, you know, like we were in Pasadena, we spent a couple nights in Pasadena, and the downtown area of Pasadena is very walkable. Mm-hmm. It's also very quiet. You know, there I don't think there's a building over 10 stories, and most of the buildings were three stories. And it was a great place to walk around because most everything we needed as a tourist was right there restaurants and shops and things to see things to do there were tons of locals walking around yeah when you when you become a magnet for tourism sometimes that can help offset the the immediate intensity that needs to happen adjacent to those those locations right because now they're drawing from a, a pool larger than just the the local uh, you know, market they're they're drawing from uh, the tourist market, so that helps. But I mean, there's no reason that downtown Mesa shouldn't be more of a hub of of tourist activity. Yeah. Well, and I don't. I also don't want to think that tourism is tourism happens because you have a great place. Right. And you know, while it can be a boost for the economy, it's not what we're looking for, and it's not the cure-all. Most great communities that I visit that I think are fantastic, especially the ones that are more on the quiet side or more family-friendly, aren't tourist meccas, aren't places where tons of tourists go, Mm -hmm. but are places that are great. And so tourism can tie in. If you create a great place, lots of people want to come visit, and it's a great place to be whether you live there or not. And I think that sometimes it's misleading to think in terms of density and intensity as, you know, the tall buildings, because tall buildings sometimes have less density than short buildings and just how how their footprint, how large the footprints of each of those units are and whether or not people are living on a big scale or they're they're kind of willing to do a little bit of trade off. They live in a little smaller space, but they give up that the big house so that their big house doesn't block out everybody else's opportunities to live um, nearby the the amenities that are so useful. So there's this there's this dynamic that's happening. Yeah, in a lot of a lot of ways, a properly built single family neighborhood 
can be just as dense or more so dense in a high-rise. Right. So if we're taking a look at the useful, safe, comfortable, and interesting being the four main conditions, we have right on Main Street, we have Almost School in Maine, which we talked a little bit about, and we have McDonald in Maine. How would you rate those four how would you rate those two intersections, those two areas, on the four conditions of walkability? How do you think it's doing? Well, the area at McDonald's in Maine, considering the useful, safe, and comfortable, and interesting, um, safe, comfortable, and interesting are probably the top three. Useful, you, ha you do have shops, you have um, salons and barbers, you have food, um, in a very beautiful area, you have the Mesa Arts Center, but you don't have a market. You'd, so that's not very useful in that area um, because the, the neighborhoods behind it, that's what you would need in order to make that place a very useful area. But with safe and comfortable and interesting, it, it's all there. You have that. When you compare um, Alma School in Maine, you have useful things, there's the, a corner store and a gas station, there's a big grocery store, a light rail station, but, restaurants. and restaurants, but it is not interesting, it is not comfortable, and it is not a safe area. And that last place that Missy Donuts, they tried to, to come in, but they couldn't make it. Like, yeah, there's been a lot of, lot of uh, restaurants that have tried to make it in that spot. I just, it's not quite interesting enough. Uh, it's not playing off of enough useful things. It's not playing off enough of that comfortable environment, I think, to, to really lend itself to being in a, in a setting that is conducive to, for its success. Yeah, and you absolutely need a car to get there safely. Whereas McDonald's in Maine, if you're living in one of the houses or one of the apartments that's nearby, it's really easy and really safe to get there and you have an interesting walk and it's comfortable in that there's lots of trees, they have shade elements, they have the wider sidewalk so you can actually walk with you and your wife and at least one kid all next to each other and not feel like you're going to get hit by a car. Right. When you cross the street, my God, there's a, there's a massive difference between these two intersections, right? Think of that experience as you're yeah, trying to cross the street. The street is is amazing how much uh, safer you feel, or um, how <laughs> your destination feels like it's not forever away, and you're you're ticking down on the the crosswalk. Uh, time is is hustling you across. I better make it. Like I, I feel sad for the eighty year old lady who tries to make it across in that time span. That's absolutely true. Our next episode is going to cover part one, why walkability, pages 16 through 35. So why walkability and walking the urban advantage. Join us next time for episode three, which will really be episode two, part two, where we finish going through the first four chapters here and we finish up walking the urban advantage and why walkability. That's all we have for today. Join us online on Facebook or Tumblr at Main Street Mesa. Email us your comments to MainStreetMesa at gmail.com. Make sure you're following us on SoundCloud. We want to thank Ariana for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's so great to have somebody uh, who's coming at this from a different perspective than David and I. And uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. I've been David Crummy. I've been Ryan Wozniak. And continue following us at Main Street Mesa.
Our theme music is written by Philip Buckman, performed by the Sweaty Palm Trees, and produced and recorded by David Weirsch. In the small and mid-sized cities where most Americans spend their lives, the daily decisions of local officials are still, more often than not, making their lives worse. Thank you, Jeff Speck.